0: And welcome to another beautiful Thursday morning. You're listening to Bhavani at IE Green on the Progressive Radio Network, and I have a great guest coming on today, Jerusha Klempler. She is, um, she was working with Slow Food many years ago when I first met her, but now she's the director of um, of a wonderful organization called Food Print. And I will tell you more about her and the work of Foodprint when she comes on in just a little bit. But first, I want to share with you some things going on in and around the world, in our area, and some ways that you can take action. First, I want to share with you, um, I shared an article in my newsletter this week that I received from uh, Dr. Tom Cowan. He is an anthroposophical physician. Um, in California although he was on the east coast and I had met him on the east coast when he was here but an anthroposophical doctor is a doctor working with anthroposophy which is the philosophy of Rudolf Steiner so he's an MD doctor but he's also a naturopath and he also uses some of the um, spiritual philosophies you know, with moon cycles or whatever in his um, diagnoses and medicine but anyway He sent around a really interesting article on the coronavirus, and I thought I'd share it. You know, I was not really taking judgment on whether it was accurate or not accurate, but it was really interesting how many people reacted to it. Um, And, you know, the title was, you know, Could There Be a Connection Between the Coronavirus and the Rollout of 5G? And, you know, some people said, you know, please don't um, spread a... um, you know, rumors around or a conspiracy theory. Um, And other people said, thank you so much for bringing this to our attention. And so it's really, you know, interesting how polarized we are even on issues around viruses. Um, But it was a really interesting article. You know, he looked at history and historically um, what has... The history behind some of the, um, outbreaks that we've had, whether it was the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, which killed millions of people, um, or whether it was, um, you know, the 1956 pandemic, you know, which was, you know, the flu. But anyway, he just highlights that, you know, when the, the flu, the Spanish flu started, it, um, was around the same time that naval bases were installing high-intensity radar for the first time. And um, with the 1956 pandemic, um, it was when they, again, introduced high-intensity radar installations off the coast of Alaska, Cape Cod, and New York Harbor. And that was for the first time. The entire globe was now subjected to these levels of radar waves. And within months, then there was the 1956 pandemic flu. So anyway... Um, it was just food for thought. You know, I'm not really saying that I agree with it or not, but it was just interesting that um, now as Wuhan City in China, where the outbreak started, that was the initial site of the most intense rollout of 5G wireless technology on the planet. And it's just interesting that that happened, and then all of a sudden this um, coronavirus epidemic started right there. So again, it's food for thought. I'm not really saying that I believe one way or the other. I am not a scientist, I am not a doctor. So I'm not qualified to make that judgment, but knowledge is power and so my feeling is the more we know, the more we can make informed decisions. And all of these issues go into food for thought and there's a lot of other reasons to be concerned about 5G, not just um this Um, epidemic. So um, it's just food for thought. So I wanted to share it with you. Um, I think it's worth thinking about. And um, on another note, I'm just really happy that New York now has a ban on plastic bags. And that started this week. And that's really exciting. I've been one to be carrying my plastic bags, I mean, my grocery bags around for years already. Um, Every once in a while, I will take a plastic bag when I don't have one, but I'm also happy to just carry the things out in my wagon and put them into my car. Very often I leave my bags in the car and forget, and so I'm bringing my groceries out just loose in the shopping cart and putting them in the bags when I actually get to the car. But either way, it works, and I'm just really so happy that we now have a ban on plastic, hopefully with more cities and states following suit, we can um, make a difference on the plastic single-use bag pollution that we have and also try to make inroads into some of the other plastic problems we have. Um, so let's see. Another thing that I wrote about this week that I think is so important is trying to bring our broken food system and the topic into the presidential election dialogue you know we talk about climate change but we really don't so much talk about how food and agriculture affects climate change and yet so much of the greenhouse gas emissions that is released into the atmosphere comes from our industrial agricultural system and i'm sure i'll be talking with my guest about that as well later on but it's something that you know we really need to get um our elected officials and potential officials really talking about. And so I have a petition on my website, so I would like to ask you all to go on under Action and sign that petition. Um, it could make a difference. So I want to share my weekly recipe with you and also tell you some things going on in and around the city and local areas you might want to take advantage of. I also share events going on around the country for people that are in different areas. Um, This weekend, I'm heading down to Washington, D.C. There's a bunch of different things that are exciting taking place at SAM, which is the Smithsonian American Art Museum. uh, Tomorrow at 5.30, they're having a dialogue on the effects of climate change that starts at 5.30 at SAM, and then we'll be there for the evening and Saturday because they are also having a women's film makers festival and that is march 6th and 7th this friday and saturday at the smithsonian american art museum um actually the friday night event is taking place at the eton which is a hotel hell, hotel in washington dc um and then saturday's program is taking place at the museum and friday night is a night of the shorts from local filmmakers so um You need to register. These are free events, but you do need to register. And then on Saturday, there's a couple shorts, but then there's a independent film called Born in Flames. And the director will be there, and there will be discussions following the film. So that should be a really interesting event. If you are in the D.C. area, um, definitely go to that. Um, If you're in the New York area, on Sunday, March 8th, there's a documentary film screening at the Cinema Arts Center called Hands On. Women, Climate, and Change. And the pa- there's a panel discussion following the film with Dr. Diana Papademis, um, from SUNY Old Westbury, Dr. Jennifer Rogers Brown from LIU Post, Dr. Margaret Abramson from Hofstra, and Dr. Scott Carlin from LIU. Um, it should be really a great program if you are in the area. Then Monday, March 9th, there's a rally and... Um, a rally and press conference to oppose the Williams Pipeline. And I've been writing about the Williams Pipeline for a long time. This is a pipeline that will be um, bringing in dirty, fracked um, gas from Pennsylvania through New Jersey, through New York Harbor, through Staten Island, all the way into Long Beach. And it's just um, a stupid, (laughs) stupid proposal, and it's something that we really need to oppose and there's been so many times where it has been opposed um I think Governor Cuomo has opposed it twice and somehow they're coming back and still fighting to do it so this is a press conference and public meeting um to oppose National grid on this Williams pipeline. So please, if you are in Long Island, please come out to that. Otherwise, please Google the um, Oppose the Williams Pipeline and you will find a whole bunch of other rallies that will be taking place in the New York area that, so that you can come out and support the opposition to this pipeline and let your voice be heard. Then on March 15th, the um, the Peconic Land Trust is continuing with their Long Island Grown Lecture Series. Um, this is the second of a part four-part series. It takes place in Bridge Gardens in Bridgehampton, if you're out on the east end, from 2 to 4 on March 15th. Um, then on March 20th, Transition Town, Port Washington, is having their second film leading up to um, Food Day, um, this is called Just Eat it, A Food Waste Story. And I just want to take a moment to talk about Transition Towns. Transition Towns, I actually thought Transition Town Port Washington was doing their own little silo thing. But it turns out Transition Town, or Transition USA, Transition Network, there's a bunch of them online. These are um, nonprofit organizations really trying to, Spread the word to mobilize local communities, local towns, to really take on climate action on a local level. And um, Transition Town, Port Washington, is a local one to where I live, and they are having these three film screenings. We saw um, Paris to Pittsburgh last week. Um, This one coming up is Just Eat It, and then there's another one actually on Food Day um, called... What's that other one called? Um on April twenty second, which is Food Day. Hold on and I will tell you. That is disobedience. Um but anyway, Transit to Townport, Washington is really mobilizing people. I couldn't believe the turnout at the last film. There was over a hundred people there. But they're looking at how their garbage, re- garbage recycling is happening, and garbage pickup, and they're looking at Hempstead Harbor and the development along the water, and you know all these issues that are affecting them locally, but that also affect our climate on a more global level. And so it's really great if you are in a town and would like to get your town um, involved in working on a local level check out these transition towns online. And like I said, there's Transition USA, Transition Network. There's a couple different ones um, when I was looking them up. So definitely check that out. Saturday, March March 21st, NOFA New York, which is the Northeast Organic Farming Association, the New York chapter, and Slow Food North Shore, which is my local slow food chapter, and IE Green, we're coming together to organize a CSA fair. CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture, and I'm sure that will come up in my conversation later as well. But Community Supported Agriculture is probably the best way to purchase a weekly share of locally grown harvested vegetables at a really reasonable price. And you're actually supporting a local farmer who needs the money up front to purchase seeds and supplies for the farm. So you buy a share at the beginning of the season and then the rest of the season you get a weekly supply delivered to either your home or a drop-off point or you have to pick it up on the farm. That's one of the reasons we're having a CSA fair. We have over 20 farmers coming out to show the differences between their different CSA programs so that you can find the one that meets your needs best. Like I said, some of them drop off at home. Some of them have drop-off points where you go pick it up. Some you have to go to the farm and pick it up. Some have community days where you get to participate in harvesting or planting. Some have community um, potlucks. Um, Some have shares where you can also buy a flour share or a bread share or a cheese share or a meat share. And some only focus on produce. So... um, you really want to come out and compare them and find out which one is right for you and your family. Some have half shares. Some only sell full shares, but you can get a full share every other week if you're a smaller family. So again, you just want to find the right program for you. So come out on Saturday, March twenty fifth. First, It's at the Sisters of St. Joseph, which is in Brentwood, which is kind of like in the middle of the island so that um, farmers from the east end can easily get there as well as Nassau County Farmers. So come after that. On March 24th, Food and Water Watch is having their 15th anniversary benefit um, at the Salesforce Tower. That's from 6 to 9. Um, please consider buying a ticket and supporting Food and Water Watch. They are a great nonprofit that I've been so happy to work with over the years. And. um If you can make it, come out and show your support for that. Slow Food East End is having their Movable Feast, which is a fundraiser for all of their programming throughout the year. That's on March 29th out in Sag Harbor. You can go to Slow Food East End's website for that. But I actually list all of these events on my website, so you can check all of that out on my website as well. And now I want to share my recipe with you so I can invite Jerusha, um Klemperer on as my guest in just a little bit. So this week I made veggie pancakes. And, you know, I love cooking, as many of you know, and I make lots of food. And pancakes is one of the things that I make that my husband's always not thrilled about. I guess he has his memories of childhood pancakes, and I always am making mine more whole grain and a little bit more hearty. Um, but anyway, this day I was hanging around thinking about just feeling like pancakes and I decided to give it another shot and they were really successful and thing about these pancakes is they really were great with maple syrup and applesauce and they were also great with like a cilantro chutney so they really swung both ways from a sweet breakfast to a appetizer savory dish so I used a half a cup of gluten-free flour and a half a cup of besan flour, which is chickpea flour. And a half a teaspoon of baking powder, a half a teaspoon of salt, and a quarter teaspoon of pepper. And I mixed that and made a batter with three-quarters cup of water. So I did that in a bowl. And then I added to it a third cup of thin- thinly sliced asparagus, three baby bella mushrooms that I chopped fine, a half an onion that I thinly sliced into crescent moons and I wanted to leave those pieces big because when they get when they're long, thin pieces and they get covered with the batter, they really get crispy. And uh, you know, that's what I was going for, kind of like my lakas. And then one medium potato that I grated, um, also added to the bowl, and a three quarters cup of broccoli. And I just mix that in with the batter. And then I lined a cookie sheet with parchment paper and I oiled the top of the cookie sheet and I dropped spoonfuls of this batter onto the cookie sheet and I baked it. So I did not fry these, but I did put some oil on the baking sheet. If you, you know, are opposed to any oil, you can do it directly onto the parchment paper and it will work as well. But to get it really crispy, the oil helps for that so i put a little oil down first i baked it for 10 minutes until the bottoms got golden brown then i turned them over and cooked them for about another five minutes um depending on your oven you know you might need to turn the pan around so that the back ones don't burn and then like i said i i sampled it with all different types of toppings i tried it with applesauce i tried it with maple syrup i tried it with jam and then i also had this zuog Zug sauce, Z-H-O-U-G sauce that I buy at Trader Joe's, which is really a great, like, spicy cilantro chutney. Um, And I tried it with that, and it was delicious as well. So um, definitely make these. They were just so good, and they were delicious, and everyone loved them. So enjoy. Let me know how you like them. And now it's my pleasure to introduce to all of you Jerusha Klemper. She is... um, the She is now Director of Foodprint, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to research and education on food production practices. And they aim to pull back the curtain on the impacts of industrial food production practices and explain the benefits of more sustainable approaches to food production and consumption. They work to mobilize people to raise their collective voices and to take action to make real change in the food system. And for the past decade, Jerusha has been a communications strategist working towards a more sustainable, healthy, and delicious food system. And prior to Foodprint, she was the co-founder and communications director at food Corps, which is an AmeriCorps service organization. And I'm so happy that our paths have crossed again and that she's able to join us on the show today. Jerusha, are you with me?
1: I am. Hi, Bhavani.
0: Hi. Thank you for joining me. It's so nice to... Have you on?
1: So glad to be here.
0: Thanks. So maybe we could just start by sharing with us a little bit what Foodprint does, their mission, and um, you know, and how they work to make social changes.
1: Yeah. So Foodprint is a website um, with you know, social media outreach and um, in-person outreach in real life, but we mainly reach people through this website. Uh, and we hope that people will use the site to make food choices that do less harm to the environment, to animals, and to people, and also to realize that we can't cook and shop and eat our way out of these problems, um, that there are larger levers that have to be pressed in order to make more systemic change. So we hope that in giving them tips for cooking and shopping and eating more sustainably and then also offering deeper dives into beef production, egg production, um, that they will um, become interested in... Learning more about the ills of this big industrial system that we have and get interested in contributing towards building a more sustainable system
0: mhm and um I know you have a campaign to promote better meat and eating less of it. Can you talk a little bit about that and why?
1: Yeah, so the food print perspective is that um sustainable uh responsible and humane animal production. Uh, meat production can be an important part of a sustainable and regenerative system, um, but that right now we 're all eating too much meat and meat that 's been produced uh, in a way that 's not humane to the animals and not sustainable and so um, all of the information that we 're giving people is directing them towards identifying how can we find meat that has been raised in a sustainable or regenerative way and then um, what do we do with it? So how often should we be consuming it? How would we even prepare it? So we understand that some of the obstacles um, to people changing their relationship to meat, eating a ton of it and expecting it to be very cheap, that there's a bunch of obstacles in the way, and some of those are cost, and some of those are access, and some of those are information. And so we try to tackle each of those obstacles. Um, In particular, we're really good at tackling the information piece. You know, we've got a food label guide that can help you um, decode uh, what the labels you're seeing on your meat are. And we will also offer you tips for how to cook um, with just a little bit of meat to flavor your food and help it go a long way. So we're trying to kind of get at all of those obstacles from different angles.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I found that really interesting. And, you know, that was used, you know, For years down in the South when people were poor, you know, they would save their bacon grease and, you know, just put a little bit of bacon grease into food just to give it that Mm -hmm. flavor. Um, Can you talk about a little bit some of your tips for eating less meat and yet, you know, not losing the flavor of it for those that love it?
1: yeah there I mean it's the very kind of stuff you're talking about, so it's everything from you know creating a pasta dish that uses just a couple of strips of bacon chopped up in tiny pieces and uses the fat from it as well um you know or cooking up a pot of beans with a tiny little hunk of meat or just some bones um you know and also just changing the the place of meat on the plate. um We have a lot of information and content and recipes um for meals that just put plants first. So, yeah, you can eat meat, but it doesn't have to be a giant steak with, like, a couple of things around it. Um, what if we... And this is, you know, really mainstream thinking at this point, which is very exciting. I mean, the conversation around plant-based eating and plant-forward recipes and plant-forward restaurants, this has really become very trendy it in a way that's exciting. Yeah, yeah. So this is not new news. You can go onto any mainstream food publication at this point, and they've joined the conversation, and we're delighted about that. You know, reading... Um, reading about, you know, Cooks Illustrated talking about how we're getting rid of food waste in our kitchen or Bon Appetit talking about how we're using less meat in our recipes um, that we share with you. so exciting to see um, these conversations be taken to the mainstream.
0: Yeah, especially for people like you and I have been in it for so long. Yeah. You know, it's taken a while, but, you know, (laughs) change is slow, but it's happening. Yeah. And it is really exciting. What do you think about the meat alternatives that are coming out? It's you know, like the beyond, and impossible. yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I think the the underlying conversation is wonderful, and I'm really excited that people are looking, both eaters and investors, and you know, big meat companies. That they're all saying, "We need to be eating less meat. How can we do that?" And acknowledging that just giving up meat isn't going to work for a lot of people. Um, so I'm really pleased that that conversation is happening. I would say that um, it's important to look at, and all of those products are not the same, right? Like some of them um, are totally plant-based. Some involve um, genetically modified food. Some of them, you know, are more more tech-forward and some are more just Um, Mm nature-forward. A bunch of them rely on industrially um, grown and processed crops that are kind of more of the same. So I think with all of them, for sure, that, Carbon um, footprint is lower, and obviously the animal welfare footprint is lower for sure, and you can't deny that um, but it is important to just look at the whole picture, like the full life cycle assessment of one of those products, um, which mostly there aren't those don't exist yet, and it just it's complicated you know when you're um, growing a ton of industrially produced genetically modified um, you know soy or protein or whatever it is to be some of the main ingredients in these, um, you know, there's factors to consider. And also, they're just extremely processed. So, um, you know, I think it's exciting to see people be interested and to see innovators get on board with how can we get people to eat less meat. Um, It doesn't really address the better meat question. It doesn't really address the better agriculture question so far. Mm -hmm. But maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe that'll be the next wave of it. We'll have to see. Right. And I think also just, you know, for the people that think they
0: couldn't, cannot possibly live without meat, it satisfies them. It shows them that, hey, you know what, you actually can. And so for that, I think it's really great. But you're right. I think, you know, the ones that have GMOs in it, you're not doing your body much better advantage by eating that. Um, You know, for some people, you know, I think having a sustainably raised burger, you know, with a meat that was... Raised humanely and, you know, out to pasture and eating grass
1: is better than a GMO burger, for sure. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if it actually does shift the market at all. So far, it hasn't. It seems like people are still eating just as much meat. They're just also curious about this new interesting product. <laughs> right, so. so they're tasting it once and then going back to the, the burger. Yeah, or just adding it into the rotation. or I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. There's still a lot of open questions here, I think.
0: Mm -hmm. But there's also so many other ways for people to add umami, that flavor, to a pot of beans, for instance. You can add some seaweed or some miso or, you know, a lot of other tips like that. Um, Do you get into some of those? I think you do, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, As I said, it's really, when you go look at, um, if you go to the latest at foodprint.org, you'll see really the full spectrum in that feed of everything that we cover you know and it's everything from um you know can the chocolate industry clean up its act like really digging into hard issues like you know enslaved child labor and um you know deforestation and then all the way to this is how you can get more flavor into a meal that doesn't have as much meat so we're really covering um a wide spectrum there uh we have a piece going we will do um highlight uh, plant-forward cookbooks a lot. We have a piece going up probably in the next 24 hours that um, talks about some really wonderful recipes from um, a new book called Vegetable Kingdom by Brian Terry that definitely touches Ah. on that thing of how do you get that, you know, complex flavor that some people are looking for into vegan and vegetarian foods.
0: Yeah. Brian Terry was on many years ago with his soul food cooking
1: cookbook. Yeah, he's been at this game for a long time. Yeah, yeah really great um you know because f-
0: you know for for many um communities that are you know so traditionally used to eating a lot of meat and um fried foods and heavy foods and spicy foods you know it's it's really a challenge for them to think about giving up meat and he's just been so influential and wonderful in um, moving that and you know getting the conversation into communities that really need to um, you know need to think about healthier eating, you know so
1: well, I think that 's the American community <laughs> i think that 's this whole country. everyone <laughs> yep yep yeah okay let 's talk about social justice
0: um, I know you you know the food prints mission addresses um some of the social justice piece when it comes to food. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. um, I think, you know, our feeling is that um, the food print of your food is something quite holistic. And as I said at the beginning, it's about the environment, but it's also about animals and it's also about people. And so you can't, our feeling is you can't call um, food production sustainable uh, if it harms people. And so um, that means if it harms the farm workers who are picking your food or if it harms their families who live near the crops where um, harmful pesticides are being sprayed in the air and getting into their groundwater. Um, It also means um, it touches on environmental justice. So if you have factory farms, CAFOs um, that are intentionally setting up in communities of disenfranchised residents so they know, oh, we can put this CAFO here and pollute the air and the water and the soil because the people here don't really have the power to stop us. Um, We feel like, in addition to the fact that it's polluting the air and polluting the water and polluting the soil, the fact that it's ruining the lives and destroying the health of the people who live there, that is just as much an issue as the animal welfare, and the environmental issues. You can't separate these things out. It's not, um, it's not sustainable production, and it's got a large food print if it's harming people. Right. So
0: important. So important. Um, let's talk about food prints label guides because, um, you know, I know there's a lot of other Organizations that also have label guides. Can you talk a little bit how are your label guides different than, for instance, the environmental working groups or Cornucopias? Or
1: sure, I'm not aware of Cornucopias' complete sort of label guide. I knew they they put out a ton of information that's extremely useful, like breaking down kind of a lot of the terms, the uh, meaningless and misguided misguided terms um, on some of their food. And I would say that ours has some overlap with the environmental working group one, but it's a little more comprehensive in that um, there's just a larger number of labels that are in it, and we kind of created our own set of criteria for um, all of the labels, whether it's, you know, all beef labels or all chicken labels. We have them separated by product, and you can go through and see how they stack up, you know, so it's by does it address um these various envir- environmental aspects does it address these various en- uh, animal welfare issues does it address so the way ours is set up it's very similar, but it's just a little more um, kind of all in one place comprehensive and so you can see something like, oh, this organic label it really um, checks a lot of the boxes for me, but oh wow it doesn't address um, it doesn't address labor issues at all and you know in some other label guides, it just won't mention that, but ours you can see there's a l- little drop-down for the various labor issues that it could cover and that some other labels do, and there's just Xs there. And then you're like, oh, okay. So that's good to know. Organic does not cover any of those issues. So we just try to put all of those issues stacked up together so you can really see, even some of the better labels, just see what they don't address.
0: hmm You know, as a NOFA board member now, I've also become um, more... Um, aware of the different certifiers. You know, organic certifiers are not even all cons- all equal. Interesting. Um, you know, I just assumed that they were, but, you know, there's organic certifiers that certify things that are coming out of the big box stores that would not necessarily pass mm. a No for New York certification.
1: Yeah. And then there's the issue of organic products from abroad that are harder to um, really guarantee that, just because they are labeled organic, when they arrive at our ports, are they actually organic?
0: Right, right. We we know how hard it is to even observe and to really, um, you know, keep an eye on organic in this country so you can only yep. imagine who's inspecting in other countries.
1: Yep. It's really tough.
0: Yeah. Um, we're going to take a couple-minute break right now, and when we come back... Um, you know, I want to talk about cooking and eating out and how people can manage that, and how FoodPrints is helping with that. So, everyone, don't go anywhere. My guest is Jerusha Klempler, and you're listening to Bavani at IE Green. Be right back.
2: Hi, everyone. I'm Beatty Conredos. I'm a psychotherapist and sex therapist and author, and host of the Ask Beatty Show. Are you tired of relationships that go nowhere and don't know why? Confused about why you have no sex drive or why, despite all of your efforts, your depression and anxiety and substance abuse are still getting in the way of your life and your relationships? Well, you can tune in live every Monday afternoon from 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, where I tackle all of these issues and more, and many of my guests are world-renowned in their respect fields you can also go to the prn archives and listen to all of my previous shows you can also leave voicemails for me at 862-800-6805 and together we can make 2020 the best year yet Next time on Peace Talks Radio, seeking understanding between faith traditions. Americans and Westerners know very little about Islam, so it's easy to pick out a problematic verse from the scripture and then put it together with some heinous acts and then dismiss the entire religion as evil. And an artist whose thoughts and work point to peace. Art is everything we do in life. When we do it with grace, when we do it with harmony. That's next time on Peace Talks Radio. Does PRN inspire you? Does PRN make you want to learn more? Does PRN help you to see inside yourself, to be yourself, to grow and to do? The truth is, we all need each other to be to grow and to do. So, we're asking that you check out the PRN.fm
0: and welcome back. You're listening to Bhavani at IE Green on the Progressive Radio Network. And if you're just joining us, my guest today is Jerusha Klemperer. She is the director of Foodprint, which is a nonprofit organization working to um, raise people's awareness about the foods we eat and how they impact the environment and climate. And um, right before the break, I was asking her about how people manage going out to eat and being conscious of the food choices they're making. So, Jerusha, maybe you can um, share some light to that for us. You know, so yeah, many people sure. go out to eat, and um, especially in New York City, I mean, you know, so many people don't cook. You know, how, how do you choose a restaurant that is being more conscientious?
1: Yeah, it's definitely challenging, um, to be sure. Uh, we have a page on our website called Dining Out Sustainably, where we try to offer some tips for that. And part of it is just helping people be smart and educated about sniffing out BS. Um, I think um, a lot of restaurants definitely, either they aspire to be um, serving more local and sustainable food or um, or they're, it's more, you know, sinister than that, but they can use a lot of buzzwords and um, visual cues like mason jars and chalkboards and um, using the word farm a lot. Um, But I think what we try to tell people is we have a seasonal food guide, for example. Um, It's an app you can download on your phone or you can use it um, on a a desktop and a website. And you can look in there and see, well, what actually grows at this time of year near me? And so if you're in a restaurant in the, you know, Pacific Northwest in January, and um, they're serving you what they call local asparagus or, you know, seasonal asparagus, you can open up your app and look. And it's like, no, that's not right. And it just gives you a sense of, like, are they being honest with you about uh, what's going on there? And it's not to play gotcha, and it's not, you know, the truth is that um, a lot of places are doing their best, and I think a lot of restaurants are, when they can, um, sourcing food that's more Local and seasonal and um, you know with meat they're hopefully working with purveyors, and hopefully the the names that they tell you of we got it from this farm or that farm are actually true, um, but to be completely honest, you just won't know for sure um, about this stuff and you know you can talk to your server we ask we offer people you know questions they can ask their servers about um, you know where the food comes from or You know, is this meat pasture raised or things like that? Servers are sometimes educated, sometimes not. So, um, you know, you do your best. And one thing that we do address with um, people is even just your – when you get your stuff to go and all the ways that you can um, reduce waste – um, reduce food waste and reduce packaging waste that's associated with takeout and, um, and dining out and all that stuff. That's one of the things that's a little more easy to control in terms of the food print when you're eating out. Um, but if you're truly committed to this, it is true that the more you cook at home, and it doesn't have to be elaborate, the more you just eat at home, eat stuff, um, you don't have to be a wonderful cook. You're probably... Um, be in better control of what it is that you're eating. Produce less waste. Use less packaging. All of those things. It's just sort of an, um, a hard fact about that.
0: Yeah, I always recommend to people when you go out to a restaurant to, you know, even if they, even if you know that they don't have any pasture raised meat or wild fish, still ask for it because it's making them realize that that's what their clients and customers want. Um, You know, if you ask, you know, what fish is wild or, you know, do you have any organic meat? It makes them think, oh, maybe we should put something like that on the menu if they don't already have it.
1: Yeah. And one of the things I think is really true, you know, I recently um, did a webinar for, um, for restaurants around food labels and educating them about labels and helping them understand what, consumers are looking for in labels, what their customers might want. And it was really interesting during the Q&A to hear from them that, you know, they they face the same struggles that shoppers and eaters do, you know, when they're at a restaurant or in a supermarket, which is, you know, things around confusion, label confusion and, you know, like they might actually feel that, wow, I'm really doing better for my customers because I'm getting um, cage-free eggs or I'm getting organic meat or organic eggs. And, you know, they might not have the time or the bandwidth to learn all the details of what that label does and doesn't mean. And so they face similar kind of education barriers that the rest of us um, do so. It's mm. challenging to understand, like really, what all these different um, production methods, methods entail. And I think you're totally right that if their customers let them know what they're looking for, it can help them say, "Oh, I thought what I had was enough, but I guess there's something that's a little bit um, better."
0: Right, right. You know, sometimes I go to Restaurant Depot if I'm, you know, doing a a large event. And mostly what I'm getting there are my gloves and my aluminum. <laughs> pans and things like that. Um, And the food there, you know, they have very little organic. I mean, they're starting to get some, but it's amazing how many restaurants really do shop at places like Restaurant Depot. And um, if you ask for organic meat there, I mean, they have very, very little. That You know, they have frozen, that comes from New Zealand. um, You know, but they have very little in the organic stuff. So it's really a challenge if that's where... You know, so many of these restaurants shop, and so I think even, you know, the restaurant owners, if they start asking places like Restaurant Depot to purchase more organic, you know, we can start making some changes. But it's it is really challenging.
1: And the cost, um, their costs would go up for these products, and then um, that cost will be passed on to the customer, and the customer has to be prepared to know. Unfortunately, the system we've got is that you have to pay more for that stuff, and that's a hard pill to swallow sometimes.
0: Right, right, and I know I have that challenge too, especially because so many of the events I'm doing, I'm doing freebies. You know, I'm doing
1: yeah, you know, right for
0: fundraisers, and I'm you know I'm not charging anyone, and it's like mm-hmm. you know, and I'm still, but I'm still committed to buying organic, and it's like it's it's a challenge because it yep. does it costs a lot, you know, it does cost more. Um, so food print, I noticed on your website you have seven things that you recommend. To people to lower their global food print, can you share with my listeners what those are?
1: Sure, um, you know, and I think it's less about like it's these seven, but we do try to try to just help people um, break down some of the factors that we 're considering in this idea of a food print um, mm-hmm. and that's environmental issues right so um, what kind of what kind of impact is this having on um, on soil, on air, on water? Um, and then also, what is the impact on animals? So pay attention to the animal welfare. Uh, what are the impacts on labor uh, for your food? So support fair label, fair labor, whether it's, you know, the people um, working in the hen house or the slaughterhouse or in the fields or preparing your food at a restaurant. If you're trying to lower your food print, you should be supporting fair label, fair labor. Keep just wanting mm-hmm. to say label there. Um, We let people know to go small and go local, that food produced locally has a smaller food print. You're supporting local farms, you're supporting the local economy, and maintaining farmland and open spaces in your community. Plus, you can talk to your local growers about how that food was grown. Um, You can commit to reducing your food waste. Um, Obviously, food waste is a larger problem than just the personal. Um, Our system kind of bakes in food waste and food loss uh, at every step in the chain, but also on the individual and household level. And so, and that's honestly this framework that I'm talking about right now exists across the board, that there are systemic issues that need to be addressed. And also there's things we can do on the personal level. And when we start paying attention on that personal level, we um, open our eyes to what's happening on the systemic level. But food waste, for sure, is something that we can tackle on a personal and household level. And then food packaging is something we're talking about um, increasingly uh, in our work is that you can't really separate um, the food that you're eating from the plastic and metal and um, fiberware that is um, keeping it um, safe on the shelves and being served to you and, and that there's things you can do to use less and better food packaging. And then also finally that you need to also um, encourage your legislators to do better by letting them know you care. Um, and so we try to help people understand how food policy works and um Uh, what kind of policies address the issues that they're concerned about.
0: Great. Do you know of any stores – I know, you know, I've read about these popping up, but I don't know of any locally – any stores where you can actually um, buy everything in bulk, bring your own containers, and, you know, where there's less packaging? I mean, you know, you go to a store like Trader Joe's where I love their products – but everything is packaged you know you can't get a broccoli that's not wrapped a million different yep. ways or yeah. a zucchini yep. that's each one's wrapped you know
1: yeah there's um there's a bunch of different sort of companies and systems and shops i know here in new york city something is launching i think today called wally shops and that's actually um i think it's that they send stuff to you in basically like mason jars and um and non-plastic bags, so it's all bulk shopping, and you can do through the mail, and then you send all the containers back to them, things like that. There's a bunch of zero-waste stores popping up, certainly um, in the New York metro area, and that I think is true in a, a bunch of different cities, but it's still pretty small and individually based. I think you know, my local natural food store has bulk bins, and then also you can um, bring in containers for cleaning products, um, and re- reuse those again and again. But it really requires, like so many things right now, um, if you're looking to do better on these issues, it really requires um, the individual to do all this hard work, to find the place that does this, and to probably have to pay more. And it's it's really not fair. Um, and this is why we really need companies to do better and municipalities to do better and legislation to be better on these things. Um, it's really unfair that it should fall to the consumer to be um swimming upstream for kind of every single choice that they make and purchase that they make to try to do better. It's a it's a heavy weight to carry.
2: hmm
1: Yeah. Um but a worthwhile one. I mean
0: and you know and it does make a difference. So, you know, it does it, and you
2: see the reason that, that are
1: these, doing it need yeah. to
0: keep doing it and need to keep yeah. spreading the word.
1: And the reason these shops are popping up is because there's a demand for them.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Let's touch on fish because we haven't talked about that, and I know you have a great article about eating smaller fish and even fish out of a can. Can you talk about that? And also, you know, when it comes to cans, I'm always concerned about the BPA lining, um, and I don't know if the fish cans have that or not. So maybe you can share that with us.
1: Sure. I mean, fish overall is obviously um, a big one where people don't know that much about it, how it's raised. Um, I think people have become educated in the past, you know, decade plus about the fact that there are overfishing issues. Um, And, you know, it's more and more common for people to uh, know what the seafood guide is that the Monterey Bay Aquarium does, um, or to even see some seafood labels in their stores. You know, 10 years ago, um, Whole Foods, for example, it was hard to tell where any of the seafood was from or you know what the implications were. Now they have a really good rating system um, that lets you know you can find the MSC label on frozen seafood in various places. But the truth is, seafood production is really complicated, and there's still a lot of really bad seafood production. We import a huge percentage of the food that we eat, and um, we know that there are some really terrible conditions, um, both in terms of labor and also habitat destruction going on, and things like shrimp farming um, uh, in places um way, way across the world. Um so there's a lot to know about seafood and a lot of ways that we can do better. We're actually um our next report is going to be on farmed seafood, on aquaculture, kind of help shed a light on some of those issues. Um because there's also a lot of interesting innovations happening around um, both farmed seafood and also um, wild seafood and um habitat management. So fishery management. So We're trying to um, help people understand uh, some of those issues. And so in the past few months, you know, we've had a piece on... can tuna and sustainability issues in and around canned tuna and the labels people might see on their can and what those mean. Um, we had a piece on shrimp and help people, helping people understand a lot of the problems with most shrimp that they will encounter in their local supermarket. Um, and yes, we just put out this piece on tin fishes and sort of the benefits of eating these smaller fish like sardines, um, and anchovies and things like that, um, in terms of BPA we co- we also recently put out a food packaging report in which we talk about BPA um, BPA is one of several bisphenols um, they're endocrine disruptors you're right that they're um, problematic, which is why they are being phased out of our system. You can look for cans that are bPA free I think you can also um, comfort yourself that uh, The amount of BPA that's in there, like, you know, for an adult or a, um, like a non-pregnant person or an adult or a non-sick person, the amount of BPA that you would, or other bisphenols that you would be getting um, through the lining is fairly minimal. Um, They're trying to phase most of them out. Um, Unfortunately, I say other bisphenols because um, BPA, there was a big uproar about it. And so it was eliminated from a lot of products, but it turns out that BPS, is just as harmful as BPA, <laughs> and in a lot of cases they just replaced it with BPS. So you can look for cans that are BPA-free or just say, you know, I'm going to limit the amount of this that I eat. Um, you know, the main concerns for um, that kind of thing are for um, pregnant people and small children. Um, so, you know, you, you yeah. balance all of these things. And well, you know, I read a really interesting
0: article. You know, I'm now, I don't know if you know, I'm the food Farm to School Coordinator for our local public Mm -hmm. school out here in Glen Cove. And so, you know, my job is to, we got a grant from New York State Ag Markets, and my job is to introduce more fresh vegetables into the school lunch program. But one of the articles that I read was how kids who eat predominantly their meals from the school lunch program have higher levels of the BPA in their urine because they're eating so much of the canned food. Oh, wow. And... You know, and it is a real problem. I mean so much of the food is canned. Um in the frozen is better, but the you know, the canned stuff and um you know you know, I've asked the suppliers, you know, do you know if the cans are BPA free? And no one knows. No one has oh any clue. They've yeah. never even heard of it. So, you know, I'm trying to do research there to make the best choice for the school district. Yeah. And you know, people don't even know the answer
1: really frustrating yeah
0: um it is because like you said it mostly affects small children and that's who we're yep. dealing with yep. um
1: so anyway i'm trying to get some fresh food in there that's wonderful um, slowly, i'm so glad they've to afford doing that <laughs>
0: yeah so um what other tips can you offer to my listeners to reduce their food waste and plastic waste and packaging waste
1: yeah, with packaging, we have um, a bunch of tools and resources on the site. Um, you know, some of it is simple. We we have a kind of simple swaps graphic um, that's available as part of our um, food packaging report that really shows you there's a lot of... Um, Great products out there now that are reusable silverware. You might have heard of it. Now there's also you know bamboo cutlery things that are lighter to carry around with you. Um, using a reusable coffee cup is really important. Using a you mentioned the plastic bag ban in New York City at the top of the show. Bringing reusable bags with you everywhere. You can also try for takeout. Um, bringing your own Tupperware container to bring your takeout home in. Um, if you bring your lunch to work, um, you can. A, we have an article about a more sustainable um, desk lunch, you know, and keeping utensils at your desk, keeping cloth napkins at your desk, keeping plates and cups and mugs. Um, turns out a lot of offices are getting hip to this and getting rid of all their paperware and introducing um, introducing real plates and knives and forks and all that. Mm-hmm. So that's great, um, you know. Basically, it's all the standard stuff, but I would say for those who are curious, definitely check out our food packaging report. We've also got content on our site about um, reducing packaging in your kitchen. Um, and, yeah, in terms of food waste, I think, as I mentioned, you know, the individual and household level is huge, and we have, if you go to our Cooking Sustainably page, we have, I mean, it's got to be between 50 and 100 articles about um various different foods and how to use up all parts of them, what to do when you've got milk that you think that's um, only got a couple of days left in it and you're not sure that you'll be able to drink it, what you can cook with it, do with it um, for, you know, leftover meat, how you can use it, um, how to use every part of the carrot, every part of the, you know, all of your herbs before they're going to go bad. Just anything you can think of, we've got ideas and recipes there.
0: Oh, that's great. Um, Yeah. I, you know, the freezer is my friend, you know. If I just don't think I'm going to finish something and yeah. be able to use it, you know, you want to better to freeze it right away so that you're freezing it fresh than waiting five days and going, oh, I better freeze this now before <laughs> right, it's right. too late. Yeah, it requires so,
1: you know, a little forethought. Like all of these things, it requires a little forethought, but it ends up really being worth it.
0: Uh-huh. Another thing I've started using that I've been loving are the beeswax sheets. Are you familiar yeah, with those? Yeah, they're great. Instead, mm-hmm. of, instead of
1: Saran Wrap. I yep. don't even have got a, a whole sar- Yep, We I actually wrote a piece for our site that's about um how to eliminate saran wrap from your life and yeah, I bought a few beeswax wrappers and a few um cloth sandwich bags and mm-hmm. a few cloth bowl covers and we actually have a tutorial for how you can make your own of all of those things. Um yeah, and I haven't bought saran wrap in over a year. Yeah. I haven't
0: had it in my kitchen either and it's just it's Amazing. I really didn't think I was going to like them or be able to do it. And I've been doing it. You know, I have all these different sizes and it actually makes the vegetables last longer. Like if you wrap a half an avocado in one of those beeswax um skins, it's almost like the skin of the avocado, so it doesn't turn brown as much and they're great. Yep.
1: They are really so, great.
0: Um yeah, so that's been f- quite freeing as well. Um so we're just about out of time. Can you um share with my listeners um anything else that you think we might have missed and also of course your website and how they would get in touch if they have any questions.
1: Yeah, well, I think we covered a lot there. We did. <laughs> But, yeah, but a few tools that are um, fun that you can find on our site. We have a short quiz that you can take to find out um, how you're doing with your food print, and it points you to resources for how you can do better in the areas that your score is a little lower. Um, we've got a great video. Um, both of those can be found on the What is a Food Print page. And then we have a an e-blast that we send out once a week maximum. Uh, We promise not to spam you and it's um, full of links to our most recent articles and also news blurbs from uh, all the news that's out there, you know, in that week. Um, And, we get good feedback on it. People find it really useful. So please do go to our site, foodprint.org, and sign up for that e-blast. You can, of course, find us on all the social media channels at foodprint.org. That's our handle. And uh, we just really try to keep things engaging for people and to be useful above all else.
0: Well, I personally want to thank you, Jerusha, for your years of work and commitment to the topic around food and food waste and healthy eating and all that good stuff, you're really making a difference. So thank you. Thank you so much, Bhavani. You're welcome. Everyone who's been listening, thanks for joining us, and I'll see you all again next week. Have a great rest of the week. Bye.